All right, every now and then, at a hotel, in a moment of weakness, you get hungry and you eat a $12 bag of chips from the minibar. Then you need to wash it down, so you buy a can of soda for eight bucks, and then you end up getting nine gummy bears for $7, and that's a lot like websites. See, you're buying something a la carte while you're hungry, and then every add-on is just another charge and another charge, but not on HubSpot. HubSpot is like the whole kitchen. It's like a really great meal. It's every feature that you could ever want for digital marketing, from landing pages to blogs, email marketing, even automated workflows. HubSpot is gonna help you turn your website into a content marketing machine. Now, if you're not an expert, no problem. HubSpot's gonna give you the off-the-floor audience a free ebook on inbound marketing. So what you're gonna do is visit the site hubspot.com slash off the floor. That's hubspot.com slash off the floor. My name is Chris Lynam and I am your host of Off the Floor, the show that is all about the learning process, the critical pivots along the way, and the positive ripple effects from those decisions. So we've probably all heard that expression like, I'd love to be a fly in the wall in that room. Well, imagine if you were like a fly in the wall when Alexander Graham Bell made the first phone call or when Thomas Edison finally figured out the light bulb thing. Well, what if you could have been a fly in the wall at Apple when Steve Jobs was there? Well, my guest today was actually mentored by Steve Jobs and she was selected to help Apple's music initiatives and she's essentially changed the way that you consume music today. Her name is Kelly Richards and she's my guest on Off the Floor. All right. Well, I am here with Kelly Richards and just reading a little bit about your bio. I just think it's really fascinating. So welcome to Off the Floor. And Thank you. uh, you're welcome. First, why don't you just tell me how it got started? What If you had to kind of trace back to maybe your childhood, was there anything that you did as a kid that you think kind of led to the career path that you've currently been on? Yeah. And, and actually, um, I have always known what I was going to do for a living from the age of eight. And I've always straddled two industries. It's not that I moved from one to the other. It's that I've straddled them together and bridged them to bring them together. That's awesome. I am sort of a matrix type person. I I don't just live in a linear fashion. Um, I uh, started off coming into the world at a time when the there's a lot of cultural revolution, you know, upheaval in the in the late 60s, and had a, a mother who was a college professor. So I was always surrounded by college students. Um, there was a lot of philosophy going on, uh, a lot of arts and culture and, you know, music and the Beatles were huge and the Beatles sort of entered my DNA at a very, very young age and kind of became a part of me. Um, so much so that when I saw George Martin, their producer behind them uh, on TV at some time, I would just got a lightning bolt and I told my parents, I don't know what that man's doing, but that's going to be what I do for a career. Wow. I could tell that he was, he had some kind of a role, even at that young of an age on my side, that was bringing out the brilliance in them. And I decided that's what I wanted to do, was bring out the brilliance in other people. And so that was kind of a pivotal moment at that young age. And I was serious about it. I studied recording engineering and uh, in high school. I read every book I could get my hands on. I actually went to a recording engineering school the last half of high school when I could drive as a junior and senior after school. 
um, I was just deadly serious about that was going to be it. And, and then I got to start to network. I found out that I had a, a gift for networking like nobody's business and I could reach anybody I wanted to. And so I did. I started making connections even at the age of 16 with industry leaders. And in fact, one of those connections, since I grew up in Cupertino, uh, California, that's my hometown. That's where I'm talking to you from now. You know, that's obviously the home of Apple, but it's my hometown. I was here yeah. before, during, and after Apple. And when I was in high school at Cupertino High, I was part of a group called Future Business Leaders of America. We were encouraged to choose a mentor that we wanted to align with. And I chose Steve Jobs. Wow. And luckily he chose me. <laughs> we That began a long-term relationship that went all the way till pretty close to his passing, um, which was decades. <laughs> yeah. And um, that, of course, was highly informative. And um, when I couldn't get arrested as a record producer out of college, I wound up going sideways and having been this networker that I am, uh, wound up getting uh, invited to participate as a young A&R executive out of the Capitol Records Tower in Hollywood for EMI. Mm -hmm. And from there was tapped to, you know, in that, in that role, I was still able to work with big artists. It's just that I didn't play the producer role. I hired the producer and I scouted the talent and managed the talent on the, on the roster. Got it. And from there, I was tapped to come home to Cupertino. Uh, a lot of colleagues at Apple. Steve had gone off to Next at that point because he'd been pushed out of Apple. And I wound up launching the original music focus for Apple, music and entertainment, and ran that whole set of initiatives for the 12 years I was with the company. And, uh, it, and my career sort of took off from there. Wow. But it was always about bridging Hollywood and Silicon Valley, not limited to music, but weighted towards music and tech integration. Always about working with big artists and big visionaries. And always about connections, making connections and reaching out to whoever I wanted to and establishing long-term relationships around that. That's incredible. So, so you were part of the high school program and then you connected with Steve Jobs through the high school program? Yeah, I was 16 at that point. Gotcha. It was the late 70s. Oh, that's so cool. So Apple was just getting off the ground. So being at like the inception point, what was, for example, like, was there a, a correlation? Did you see something in jobs that maybe you saw, you know, in the Beatles? Yes, I did. Um, and that is a gift that I've been given and I've cultivated it since then of being able to see the brilliance in other people, just yeah. as George Martin saw it in the Beatles and wanting to be around people that broke rules and took chances and were innovators and were creative. And that's been my through line throughout everybody I've ever worked with from Prince and Michael Jackson to Paul McCartney and, and Steve and everybody in between. I mean, that's really a passion that I have. And so, um, you know, I don't want to fast forward too many steps ahead, but I'm doing that now, even as a trusted advisor with the highly influential people and the, and the people that aspire to be high achievers that I, that I work with in that capacity. Sure. It's about pulling out the brilliance they can't see in themselves. Or if they can see it, cultivating it and finding new ways to express their, their talents. So I know being at like, like the ground floor of somebody where you can see the rosy future for them, you know, what are your first steps, you know, to try and, you know, because there's so many people that we deal with, whether it's through dance instruction or through business coaching, things like that, where they can't really see what they're capable of, like you just mentioned, and that you kind of have that foresight. What is it that you do first? Is there a, a formula you, that you follow? Do you do a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with them? Like, how do you kind of build up from that ground floor that they might be feeling, even though you kind of see, you have like a skyscraper vision of what they're capable of? Yeah, there is no formula and there is no template. Uh, a lot of it is intuition. 
A lot of it is listening very carefully, sizing them up, if you will, getting a read on them. Mm. Uh, I am also a believer in um, working with the universe without sounding too woo-woo or spiritual, but mm-hmm. spirituality does inform how I operate my life and my business. And um, I figure I'm, I'm given some of those gifts from that realm. And I figure I don't, I don't advise people alone. I have help from unseen forces <laughs> that have a better view about the individual than I do. Yeah. So I tap into that, call it intuition if you like, and I align with what I'm being given in terms of the vision I'm seeing about the person. And the picture comes into view from that stance, from the conversation, from the heart-to-heart connection, from being fully present and listening carefully to the person. And it goes on like that. Can you give me an example? Like, you know, every now and then when I'm talking to, uh, like, let's say we're going to hire a new teacher for one of our schools, I can kind of imagine... I could see them a year from now wearing a ball gown and, and, and being on the floor of a big prestigious competition or something. And I can kind of imagine that. Do you, do you sort of have the same thing? Like, can you get to a point where you can have a, a really clear visual of what you could see for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a sizing them up type of an exercise that's very intuitive. It does defies explanation. Hmm. It's a vibe that you get, I get, that it's a vision I have from how they show up their essence, their presence, their charisma, their personality, their talents. You just can kind of see it. The pieces come together for me. And then, um, you know, that's at a micro level with an individual. At a macro level, that's translated to me living inside a crystal ball professionally for most of my career. I've seen where things were headed. I've seen trends in, in the convergence, for example, of music, entertainment, and technology. I worked on VR initiatives when I was still at Apple 25 years before they took off. Um, I had a business with Todd Rundgren in the mid nineties, which was at least 13 years ahead of its time, even launching music for Apple in well, 15 years before the launch of iTunes. Right. I have that ability to see where things are headed. My Achilles heel is I don't always see clearly a timeline for how fast things are going to be adopted, whether it's with an individual embracing their vision and their direction, or whether it's with a trend and a company, that's something I just don't seem to have a lock on. It's so neat that you're, you're kind of that, like you said, the through line. And it reminds me of like Forrest Gump, where he was in a part of so many like really spectacular things throughout his life. And there's a reason for that. And I was just talking to that about him in that way yesterday, believe it or not, to somebody oh, wow. else. Uh, the reason is because he, he didn't get in his own way. He allowed the universe to steer him. He followed his intuition and it it sort of became a yellow brick road. His life became a yellow brick road. And he just kind of went from place to place and found himself in those circumstances. Yeah. He didn't plan any of that. It happened to him because he allowed it to. Yeah. And how many people too kind of shut themselves off from that or they try to repave the road that's kind of being opened up for them because they feel like they could take it in a, in a and they kind of manipulate the, the path that's in front of them. Well, it's, it's a lot of what I talk about when I work with someone in a trusted advisor capacity. It's, it's really a, an education for them about getting out of their own way, mm, yeah. you know, and allowing a co-creation to happen. That's so great. So now when you, when we think about some of the artists, like you've mentioned that you've been involved with, who's somebody that, that maybe you had an, a, you know, a gut feeling about, like you talked about, you know, that you were able to, to maybe help them you know, you had some type of influence with them in some capacity. You know, even as brilliant as people like Todd Rundgren and Prince were and are, Todd's still alive, of course. Um, you know, these guys, the reason I resonated with them was because they were so bright and brilliant 
and had tech expertise and vision and followed their intuition and a lot of a lot of raw talent. But you know, I had I, my complement to that was being able to sort of be I don't want to call it a muse, more like a peer, but being able to help them shape the visions they were having, sharing my own about where the technology was headed how we'd be serving consumers in a new way, going direct to fans. And Prince used to call me not infrequently and say, you know, I'm thinking about this. Somebody's pitched me about that. What do you think about whether this is really on point? Is this on trend? Does this make sense? Hmm. So I'd be seen as sort of a sounding board and a peer because they knew that I was a fellow visionary. And I'm sure there's some some parallels too between someone as dynamic as Prince and then you have like, jobs who's kind of like the Rosetta Stone for all these parallels like what what's something that you feel like would be a, a like a, a common thread between those two really dynamic individuals well I think both of them didn't suffer fools you know they they wanted to surround themselves with people who really got it got them and were willing to rise to their best you know people often complain about how Steve took people to task and tore them apart there was a reason he did that. I'm not saying that was the best approach. I witnessed a lot of that with him. I was never at the effect of it myself, but I witnessed him behaving like that. And I think the reason that he did was because he could see the potential of the person and they weren't living up to their potential. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily the best approach, but I think his intention was to encourage them to go back to the well and bring their A game, live up to what their capacity was, live into their excellence. And Prince was very much like that too. So is Paul McCartney. Hmm. These guys, I mean, Paul, when I worked with him on an event would say, um, and how's the room going to be set up? How many people will be in here? And I mean, you know, why would he care? But he did <laughs> because he was that on point with the details. All of these guys sweated the details, all of them. High visionaries and then into the weeds with the details because they sought perfection. Nothing less was going to do. That's incredible. It reminds me of that uh, that article that Dan and Chip Heath wrote for Fast Company, talking about uh, the writer for Van Halen and how they they included all the, the things. M&Ms. The yeah, M and M's. The M and M's. Yeah, I know yeah. that very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. no, I mean, I, I don't know. That's hard to say. That could have just been them playing around with, you know, the promoters. Right. <laughs> but but when it came to actually delivering great products, like Steve did. I mean, nothing less would do. It had to be the best. It had to be the best materials, it had to be the best casings, the best colors, the best experience. Everything had to be top drawer or yeah. it wouldn't pass muster. Right. Oh, and I've heard that, you know, that whole story about how he wanted to f even the, the back end of something or that wasn't his inside, father was like a carpet. Yeah, the inside of the Macintosh. And that's why the designers signed the inside of the Macintosh because um, he, he even wanted the, the piece that nobody would ever see to be perfect. Wow. And, and Prince was like that and Todd is like that. And um, you know, these guys are perfectionists. They want nothing less than what the best option is and with anything. Well, this brings me to a really interesting you know, point is that you know, we deal so much and you've dealt with this that when you're helping somebody who is already incredibly talented, you still have to give feedback. And like what's, what you said about Steve, where he had to bring out somebody's strengths where they weren't really living up to what their potential was. So, so you, know, what's the, you know, what's the approach and what are the challenges that maybe that people kind of face when it comes to giving feedback? And sometimes you can almost 
feel like your hands are tied when you're trying to give feedback to someone who is already talented. You know, what's your take on that? I think it's just about being perceived as a peer that they trust and rely on. Building trust is paramount and coming from a stance of being an equal to them and being willing and having the courage to say, you know what, I see it a different way. And being willing to listen to them and ask powerful questions as opposed to just diving in with your opinion. Mm. Maybe extracting out of them through powerful questions and careful listening. Is that what you really meant to do? Is there a way that you could make it that much better? Is that the way you really want to approach this individual? You know, just slowing them down and getting them to, to think is, is really powerful. Or even a reframe of something. Um, you know, uh, you did this and you got that result. Um, can you see how if you did it this other way, it might have had a different impact. Yeah, that's, I mean, because it's so delicate, right? I mean, you have someone who, when it comes to music, you have someone who's really kind of bearing their soul. They're like opening up their underwear drawer, essentially to a bunch of people in a booth, and they've got to be able to kind of show their talent and then at the same time, not take offense and take it personally when they get that feedback. Well, there's an art to giving feedback um, where you're not, and I think, Steve did it very badly. I mean, I adored him. But, but then again, you know, it was hard to coach Steve. You know, he was my mentor. It was hard for me to give him input um, because he really didn't want to hear it. He was such an individualist. And Todd was a lot like, is a lot like that too. Um, you know, it, sometimes it can be hard when people are really on point and they have their hands on the steering wheel of their own life and they really don't care what anybody else thinks. Do you feel like Steve had kind of got to a point where he understood his point of view so clearly that he was willing to just take any negative results that he got from that point of view? Well, he got fired for it. That was a very painful lesson that he couldn't control. But as a result of that, he set off in his hero's journey and look what happened on the second coming. I mean, now Apple's the most valuable company in the world by far. Yeah. That's his legacy. And then what, what, in terms of the timeline, so, so were you there when, when there was like the, the rebirth? I've of, always been there. Yeah, got I've it. Gotcha. I haven't been on the payroll in a long time, but my DNA is most certainly entrenched in the walls. Oh, that's um, And I'm still over there a lot. For, I'm still in touch with the senior management team. I'm, I never really left. The company and me are pretty, pretty much um, intertwined. Oh, that's wonderful. In fact, I published a book called The Magic and Moxie of Apple, an insider's view about six years ago now. It was an homage to Steve, but it wasn't about Steve. Uh, and it was about um, the culture of Apple and why it's so powerful. But you got to remember, this is my hometown where Apple is. And I'm, I've tried to leave several times and it pulls me back like a tractor beam. <laughs> I, you know, um, it's really hard to extricate myself from the, from the zone. I used to cut apricots for a summer job and as a teenager when I later worked on the same ground in, a, in an Apple building. I wow. mean, I'm, the roots run very, very deep. Yeah, it's, uh, I know hearing those stories of old Cupertino and it was nothing but orchards and, and uh, I and was lucky. it wasn't lucky that long ago. I'm not that old. It yeah, wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where I, my buddy had the final like orchard in the foothills and the evergreen foothills. And so, but it was the same thing. He had apricot orchards as well. And, uh, and so I can only imagine where my dad grew up, same thing in Cupertino. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I totally understand the, just how special that is. Uh, but how, how fast things move to think that you have orchards 
in in one decade and then in the next decade you've got this this groundbreaking company a absolutely yeah so then you know in terms of the like you said the hero's journey i love that comparison for steve too and and what do you feel like he maybe picked up you know and and what were the things that really resonated with you that that kind of changed did you feel like some of his hard edges sort of smoothed out or like all, all you have to do is watch the commencement speech he gave at stanford in 2005 Hmm. All you have to do is listen to that 15 minute speech to get all those questions answered. He said, you know, um, it's important to be humble. He learned humility from that whole experience. He learned the importance of working as a team. You know, he did get softer. I think from that experience and also from marrying Lorreen and having children, having a family, uh, reprioritizing his life, you know, having the success of Pixar in tandem with what was going on with Apple. He had a broader worldview to operate from when he came back the next time. Yeah, that's fantastic. So now let's talk a little bit about just, you know, your work in the A&R world. And do you feel like when it came to talent and when it comes to, you know, let's say in, in the music industry, do you feel like you were actively looking for somebody? Do you feel like people... Was it like you suddenly heard them out of the blue and they kind of like fell into your lap, like on your golden brick road? Like, how do you feel like, you know, you found your most important people when it came to wrangling up the talent that you would eventually turn into something? Well, that's a hard question to answer because um, it was a combination of working with artists that were already on the roster who I later worked with in other ways, like David Bowie and Thomas Dolby. But Scouting talent, we did that every night after work, especially on the weekends. Um, going to clubs and listening for something special, usually the lead singer's voice, the way the band hung together, their personality, their charisma, the caliber of the songs. Did you hear a hit? You know, it's ears. It's ears and a sense of how committed are these guys? Are they just trying to make money and, and get laid or are they really interested in making a difference? Their own dent in the universe to coin a Steve phrase. Hmm. You know, um, so that was a lot of it, but, but a lot of it, you know, there was people coming to us, publishers with songs they wanted placed, tapes that would come in, almost never, you know, that almost never turned into a signing, once in a blue moon, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, when you're in the ecosystem, when I was in LA living in, and working in Hollywood out of the Capitol tower, you're in the air at the epicenter. So right. it's like, it, it literally is like a revolving door of existing talent, rising talent, you know, it just, you're in the middle of it. But I think that for staying power, you know, that was a different time too. And you know, that's like 30 years ago now when I was in the, doing all that. Um, I, I think we cared about creating artists that would have a career and true artist development over time, a body of work. I was very heavily entrenched in the rock and pop world. Mm. And now it's all about hip hop and rap and right. country crossovers. <laughs> and, you know, it, music is more disposable. In other words, I don't think um, artists necessarily have long-term careers anymore. I think it's less that frequent that you'll see that. Um, uh, songs seem, you know, careers seem disposable. If you don't have a hit, you're out. Right. You know, as opposed to an album or four albums. Yeah. You know, so I, it's a very different environment on a lot of fronts. And of course, in large part, I, you know, I'm happy to take credit for my part of what's happened with the digital revolution. That's changed everything too. You know, you don't have to buy the whole CD to just get the one song you want. Um, touring is a heavier component than it's ever been for artists in terms of getting in front of fans and making money. 
Sure. Not necessarily making money off the songs anymore. Yeah. I mean, and that really just turned everything on its ear. How do you feel like that kind of ties into staying power? You know, because like you said, artists aren't going to make nearly as much money as they used to off just record sales. And so now is it kind of like the artist has to be the full package um, where maybe in the past they could just kind of get by on, on the merits they, they of the song. it in with a song that got played on the radio. Yeah. 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 Now that's not the case anymore at all. Um, now we have social media. Todd and I birthed the whole artist direct a fan movement in 95. Um, so that's 23 years ago now where we, we were the first to put forth in the marketplace the notion that artists should go to their fans directly and engage with them, interact with them. So that whole concept is where it's at right now. Artists have to play in front of fans. They, they have to engage with them somehow in social media. That's what makes the difference. Now, who are some artists right now that you feel like really get it, regardless of when you heard them? If you heard them 30 years ago, you heard them today, but they'd have the staying power even if they started way back then, but they really get it today. Well, you see Paul McCartney as an example. I mean, you know, he's still writing songs and they're good. They're not great necessarily. Some of them are, but mostly they're just really good. Uh, the man writes songs. That's what he does. That's his gift. But he's still out there performing at 76. Wow. And he doesn't have to. Yeah. You know, Ringo too. Ringo's 78. Um, you know, these guys are out there. Uh, the Stones are still touring, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> you know, what is that, 60 years now? Yeah. Um, close to it. So, uh, and then um, I think Maroon 5, Bruno Mars, uh, Taylor Swift, Carrie Underwood, these artists all really get it in terms of being in front of their fans, interacting with their fans. It's all about the fans, wanting to have that relationship, writing for them. Mm. You know, uh, these are the artists that tend to have staying power. So let's just put together like a hypothetical. Let's say you're you're just having a, a, a drink after dinner and, and there's like a little lounge act to sing in you, and you hear somebody that no one's ever heard of before and it's, you know, super talented and they you get hit with the with the the lightning bolt what's kind of like the thing that you would encourage them to do if they had like in year one what would you want them to to try and accomplish is it like a certain number of songs written would you want them to you know start on facebook then create an instagram account like what would be what would be your best advice i don't tend to work with rising artists i only tend to work with established artists so i'm not really at the front end of that process anymore mm. but if i were I would say things like, um, do not think that getting a record label deal is the Holy Grail by any stretch of the imagination. It could actually be a death trap. Mm. Um, it's not the beginning of the journey. It's probably the middle of the journey. And only if uh, the artist takes control with their team of that negotiation process. Never want to give away your masters, your songs, or your domain name or your brand to a label ever. You don't even want to approach them. You want them to approach you and they're not going to do it until you have a body of work. It's probably not going to happen off one song. It's probably going to happen after you've amassed a social media following of at least 50 to 100,000 fans. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so it's, a, you know, you have to be willing to, you have to be able to be talented and write good songs and perform well and, and be willing to interact with your fans. That's and you have to be willing to take the long view. It's not a, a get-rich-quick scheme. Well, and how many people, too, have, have done that, where they've taken the, they've like you said, they took the record deal, and that became the beginning of the end. And it was like a, the... Yeah, because then they had to spend all the years unwinding it with legal help. 
to get their masters back. Look no further than Prince for the example of that. Mm. He, he changed his name to the symbol. Remember that? Yeah, I didn't. Long, long enough to re-record all those masters oh. so that he would own them this time. And when he was done, he changed his name back to Prince. I did not even know that was why he did that. Yes, because he was protesting. And remember, he was talked about being a slave to the record label. Yeah. And he took it to the mat. And then you have all these artists from Tom Petty to Billy Joel who went to bat to get their songs, their, their songwriting publishing revenues. You know, those got taken away. So, you know, you never want to go down that arena. And then and it got even worse in the late, uh, what was it? 2008 and 9, the labels were starting to try to box artists in for so-called 360 deals, mm. taking a percentage of their revenues on touring and merchandise and any deals they would do with the brand, the sponsors. And wow. that was another problem. You know, you just, the artists need to realize that they're running a business. And if they can't run a business and be a, a talent, and very few can, then they have to surround themselves with business people that are going to protect them and look after their interests and manage all of that. Um, so that, that's my stance on, on, on rising artists. I, I, I usually, I, I go even further and I say, choose another career, <laughs> run away. <laughs> Don't even think about going in that direction unless you're absolutely convinced that there's nothing else you're going to do while you're on this planet. Wow. You have, I, I, I discourage them because it's the hardest business anybody can possibly be in, especially if they're not serious and committed. And, and that's tough advice, but sage advice at the same time. I can, I can totally get that. So, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about what you're doing now? Like, tell me about the all access group. Tell me about, you know, what, you know, how you're able to utilize all these things that you've been so passionate about. Uh, well, I've, I've carved my own path, Chris, you know, I am a Renaissance woman and I'm not willing to give up anything that I love doing. You know, I, we didn't even talk about the fact that I've been a producer, a talent producer. I channeled the producer energy in that direction and wound up, uh, you know, being a producer on award shows and celebrity fundraiser events for 30 plus years. Yeah. And that and the Grammys, too, right? Um, not the Grammys, the Bammies and the Polestar Awards, which okay. are more industry facing than consumer facing. Gotcha. But still, um, you know, being able to, to work with a lot of artists in that capacity, invite them to be presenters and performers and manage them. And, and their involvement with all that kind of thing. So that is still a part of what I do. I call it now celebrity wrangling is the other side of that coin where I'm bringing talent to Silicon Valley to perform at, you know, private high net worth events and corporate events. That's, um, that's a piece of my work. Another piece is serving as a consultant from uh, funded startups all the way to Fortune 100 companies as a strategist and biz dev accelerant to create partnerships with the, uh, with the content world based on new technologies that are disruptive and innovative, new business models that allow for distribution of content to fans and consumers in a new way. I put myself in the middle of bridging those worlds. And then, um, you know, the thought leadership part where I run my own podcast and publish articles, publish books, speak, all of that. And then, uh, of course, the thing I love the most these days, which is working as a trusted advisor one-on-one, -on -one, primarily to people who have already made it, whether they're coming out of tech, music, or entertainment. They're already financially successful, but there's something missing in their lives. Mm. And uh, I help them kind of reconnect with what matters most and, and carve a new path for what comes next, new ways to make money, uh, new ways to invest their money in terms of being philanthropists and creating something that's a legacy for them. I often also work with high achievers who aspire to be in that situation. I love that. It sounds so much too like I, I always just imagine I've been talking about this with my, my team is that 
you know, when it comes to feedback, you have someone who's already talented and then, you know, it's like, but you, you also need to have an audio engineer and no matter how good the singer is, you need to have an audio engineer, whether it's a live show or it's a recording. And, it, and, and when you talk about that, you work with people that are already pre-established, you're not, you're not writing the music, you're not singing the songs, but you're just tweaking the dials just enough to bring out the best in them. And, well, that's and, a, now that brings us full circle to my original vision of what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew that's exactly the role I wanted to play from the age of eight. I just didn't, I had to be willing to take the Forrest Gump journey because it wasn't a straight line. Yeah. So cool. That is so cool. I love that. So if we had to wrap it up now, what's your final thought? Like what's the, the bit of advice that you think that anybody that whether their hero's journey is something in, in their career or if it's something in their hobby, something where they're, they're trying to achieve that thing outside of their comfort zone, what would be like the thing from your life that you feel like could transpose to everybody that they could benefit from? Well, I really think it comes down to trusting your intuition and listening and paying attention to the whispers and not uh, writing over top of that. Um, slowing down enough to hear yourself at a very deep level and um, getting help if you need it. Having a mentor or advisor that can bounce things back and hold up a mirror and helps to keep you out of trouble. That's fantastic. Well, Kelly, it's been really, really great picking your brain. I want to thank you so much for making the time. I know you are an incredibly busy woman. And uh, and just to be able to, to hear your Forrest Gump journey, that was such a cool part of this interview. I love that. And, uh, and I want to thank you so much for being on Off the Floor. My pleasure, Chris. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who famously said, people only see what they're prepared to see. And for Kelly, as an eight-year-old, she certainly saw talent in the Beatles, but something prepared her to see the greatness in Brian Epstein, their manager. So it's not surprising that she'd continue to seek out someone like Steve Jobs or find herself with names like Prince, Paul McCartney, or even Michael Jackson. For many of us, we're just guilty of being only prepared to see what's comfortable, practical, or just in the short term. We're never realizing that we're actually standing on the yellow brick road with so much greater potential if we just recalibrate our focus. I want to thank Kelly once again for being such a great guest and for sharing your story, and also thank you, the Off the Floor audience, for listening. As you journey outside of your comfort zone, consider this podcast as your travel companion. So if you're enjoying it, please go to iTunes, search Off the Floor, and hit the subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.